Last week we saw that Abraham interceded for Lot. And he was exploring in faith what the Lord would do. And he asked the Lord, if there are ten righteous in the city, will you spare them? And the Lord said, yes, I will spare Sodom if there are ten righteous in the city. Well, now we're going to see the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah today. And, um, you know, I, I was speaking with John. John um, Rude uh, has been reading a book called The Almost Christian. Is that right, John? The, the Almost Christian? Yeah. Almost Christian. Today I want to talk about, I was thinking about that title because I think it's very informative. Uh, it's very helpful. There are almost Christians. Um, but there are also the barely saved today. And today I want to talk about the barely saved Christian. And to do that, I want to turn your attention to Genesis chapter 19. I'm going to read the whole thing, and I invite you to read it with me. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. And when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, and bowed himself with his face to the earth, and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house, and spend the night, and wash your feet. <clears throat> then you may rise up early, and go your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to enter his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to meet the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do not do to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become our judge. Now we will deal with worse with you than with, with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot, and drew near to break down the door. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-laws, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of this place, for we are about to destroy this place, because of the outcry against the Lord, its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up! Get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, 
Take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, and the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out of the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, O no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of that city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Now, Lot went up to Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters, And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve his offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father, He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down, or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son, and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son, and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. Now, in this passage, this is, this is what's good about preaching expositorily. 
um, preaching through the Bible. Because very few people would choose to preach through this passage. And I mean that seriously. This is not a passage that people delight to preach through necessarily. And nor can a preacher be accused of riding a hobby horse um, when he preaches expositorily because it just comes up next. And we've been going through Genesis, and here we are in Sodom. Now in this passage, we, we see a snapshot of why God wanted to judge Sodom. Do we not? We see an example of the wickedness of Sodom. But we also see, and I think more prominent than even the wickedness of Sodom, we see a man, <coughs> Lot, who was rescued in spite of himself. Do we not see that? Rescued in spite of himself. I struggle with this passage for a few reasons. Because I think Lot is pathetic. And it's like, how should we think about this passage? Should we say, see, Lot was a sinner, but he was saved by grace. Amen. No. No. That's not, that's not the point. That's not how we receive correction and instruction from the Lord in this passage. We go further. We say, Lot was a man, and he was saved by the mercy of God. Amen. But look how pathetic his life was. Look what lack of impact. Look at the futility of the life he chose for himself. Look at the insignificance and the meaninglessness, the passivity of his life. Now, as evangelicals, we usually split people into two categories. There's the saved and there's the unsaved, right? I think I would like to redeem a third category. I want to say there's the unsaved, there's the saved who produce almost no fruit, and then there is the fruitful Christian. The unsaved, the barely saved, and the fruitful saved. Those are the three categories I believe exist in Christianity today. And the problem is, we've taken the message of the Bible and turned it into a message about how to get to heaven. And the goal is getting to heaven rather than the glory of God. And so what's the point of life? <laughs> what's the point of the Christian life then? If it's just getting to heaven, and as long as we maintain faith, we think, well, then we're going to reach our goal anyhow. But that's not the ultimate goal of the Christian life. The ultimate goal of the Christian life, indeed your existence, is the glory of God. And while you do glorify God by being saved, you also have an opportunity to live a life that glorifies God now, to be salt and light, to shine, so that your Father in heaven is glorified. Right? 
So, I believe in the unsaved, the barely saved, and then the Christians who make their life count for eternity. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 3.11 says, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will be, be, become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be re revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you see that we've flattened out the Christian life to being saved, rather than building upon Christ's work with things precious, things that are golden, things that shine, that are silver, precious stones, strong wood. You can build upon Christ's work with those things. But then there are others who build upon Christ's work with hay and straw. And they will be saved. They will be saved. But they will suffer great loss at the same time. And this is why I think John Piper's seashell sermon was so good for our generation. Because he told a group of young people at a convention that all they want to do is be liked. Get a good job. Find a spouse. Long weekends. Long vacations. Die healthy and no hell. And that's all they want. That's what they will get. They will get what they want. And I'm pr and I want to. I don't. Please don't understand. Don't misunderstand me. I, I'm glad that God is merciful and He saves people in spite of themselves. But as I see it, as Christians, the project now in the Christian life is to move forward, to advance, to progress, to move towards a goal, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So Lot was rescued, and therefore he does rep represent a man for us that was saved by God's mercy, but he also, I think, represents how insignificant a life can be, even by a person who has saved themselves. So I've entitled this sermon, A Diagnosis of an Insignificant Christian Life. And I don't want our lives to be insignificant. And here you and here you sit today. Here you sit today, well and healthy, and 
able. And so this is not condemnation for anyone here today. This is encouragement and this is warning that we stay away and that we run, run away from this kind of existence. The saved person, the man rescued from the fire of God, yet bound to a futile existence and saved as only as through fire. Here's the autopsy of an insignificant Christian life. First of all, I notice that an insignificant Christian makes worldliness commonplace in his life. And he will allow himself to be influenced by worldliness. Uh, 19, it says that there are two angels came to Sodom. Why two angels? According to the law, the evidence must be established on two or three witnesses. So these are two witnesses to the wickedness of Sodom. Deuteronomy 19.15 says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with the offense he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. So, the Lord knew what was going on in Sodom. So when he goes down to see, he brings two witnesses with him so that the evidence would be firmly established in the courts of the Lord. This is why in Matthew 18, in the context of church discipline, if a brother offends you, you go tell him his fault. If he won't listen to you, what do you do? You bring two or three witnesses. And if he won't listen to them, you take it to the highest court of appeal that exists, the church. Not a presbytery, the church. This is why we're congregational in our, in our convictions, because we believe that the authority lies with the church. That's the highest court of appeal in the Bible. The people of God acting together. And this is why we take membership important uh, um, seriously. So, oh, in Revelation 2, there are two witnesses who come down. And that's in the context of judgment as well. So the angels serve not just as emissaries who are going to carry out the destruction of Sodom, but they care, but they serve as witnesses to the evil in Sodom, and they do see the evil in Sodom. Now, as the angels approach, they find Lot in a biblically significant position. What is he doing? Verse 1, he is sitting at the gates of Sodom. This is unlike Abraham, who is sitting at the door of his tent, sojourning. He has not made a home. Thank you. He has not made a home in the world. He's waiting for the promise. Lot, however, has made a home. And not just in the world, he's made a home in Sodom. And he is sitting in the gates of Sodom. You know, Psalm 1 tells us, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. So, once you start walking with a group, 
you'll start slowing down and standing with them. And once you stand, you'll sit down with them. And then you belong to them. And that's what happened a lot. And I think this, first of all, shows us that proximity to evil is going to have an influence on your life. Proximity to sinfulness is going to have an influence on your life. Do not be deceived, Paul says. Bad company ruins good morals. But you say, oh, but we're so... I had someone tell me, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't tell you this, but I had someone tell me, lest they hear this, I had someone tell me that, you know, uh, Christian school is great, homeschool is great and all, but we need to be salt and light. That's why, you know, I send my kids to public school. I'm not arguing about sending your kids to public school, but at the time that he said this, our kids were five years old. And my kid at five years old is not going to be salt and light to his teacher. He didn't even know his name. He needs to be raised in the, in the fear and instruction of the Lord, right? Um, I don't know why I said that, but that, that's the thing. Now, yes, we're supposed to be an influence, but don't, do not try to be an influence in a godless world when you yourself are bathing yourself in godlessness. You're not strong enough. You don't shine bright enough to be an influence yet. That is why Christ himself spent much time in the wilderness with the Father. Read the Gospels. He is constantly waking up before the sun has risen and going out into the wilderness. Before his ministry began, 40 days in the wilderness. People are constantly searching for him because he is not just out there mixing it up only. He is spending time with his heavenly father so that through his strength of having done that, he can go out and be an influence. Don't forget, he is God, but he was also a man. So, you need power to have an influence in the world and the power that comes from God. And if you try to be an influence in a godless world, when you don't have the power, you will be ripped to shreds by the world in subtle ways. You'll be like the sons of Sceva who go in and say, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, come out of him. And the demons will look at you and say, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? And they will leave you naked and wounded. You don't have the power to deal with evil at that level. If you've bathed yourself in wickedness. But there is progress that can be made in the Christian life. You can make progress in the Christian life. And you can become known by demons. Your name can become known in hell. But you cannot sit at the gates of Sodom. You need to be elsewhere. There will be tar far too much influence on your life, though you be saved. Even though, yes, you are saved and righteousness is imputed to you, if you bathe yourself and marinate in worldliness, 
you will be influenced to a helpless degree. So, Lot invites the angels to stay with him, and they are reluctant to spend the night, but he begs them. And so they do. They capitulate, and they decide to spend the night with, uh, with Lot. So here we have a man who has made worldliness commonplace in his life. He has sat in the gates of Sodom. Secondly, I notice about insignificant Christians that having been influenced by worldliness, the insignificant Christian will demonstrate moral confusion because they've been influenced by worldliness. In verse 4, we have a snapshot of Sodom's moral debauchery. In verse 4, it says, But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. So there are no righteous in the city. Everyone to the last man. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out so that we may know them. No, as you know, is a euphemism for sexual intercourse in the Bible. Adam knew his wife Eve. Right? Um, Cain knew his wife. And so you can look in um, Genesis 4.1, Genesis 4.17, 25, 24, 16 for that reference as well. No means sexual relations. It doesn't mean aware of. Um, so what is being proposed by the men of, men of Sodom is homosexual gang rape. And Lot, having dwelt in Sodom and made a home in Sodom, demonstrates a man with a moral compass, who has a moral compass that has been so badly damaged that he gives up his daughters instead of his visitors to men who are violently lusting homosexual sex. Verse um, 7. Lot comes out and says, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you. And you can do to them as you please. But don't do anything to these men because they've come under my roof. So, just to clarify what's happening, Lot is seeking to rectify the problem of homosexual gang rape by offering his daughters as an alternative. That is a confused man. And that is a broken moral compass. So having seen enough of this, the angels rescue Lot. They open the door, they bring Lot inside, and they show, in fact, that they didn't need to be rescued by Lot at all. They strike the men with blindness, and the men are left groping at the door. One commentator says the word groping means a state of dazed confusion. So they're, they're, not, they're not even mentally working properly at that point because the angels blinded them and they're groping in lust for the door after these men so that they can know them. This is surely a scene of moral chaos, is it not? 
It gives a snapshot as to why God intended to judge Sodom in the first place. It's, it is a snapshot of moral insanity of a society who has lost their collective minds, very literally, collectively have lost their grip on reality and have given themselves over to lust and debauchery of the highest order. Now, as I said last week, sexual perversion like this is an example of when God no longer sustains a person's mind to operate in accordance with reality. This is why in Romans 1, God gives them up to the lusts of their minds, right? To a debased mind. So we just studied providence in Bible study. And I think part of providence, God's common grace, is that he sustains society at large and human minds, in more specifically, to agree with reality up until a point that they resist so much that they, he gives them over to their debauched mind and to a debased mind so that they continue in the trajectory that they have gone and they end up, their lives end up being a contradiction and an obvious disagreement with what is real. And we see this very thing happening today in the, in the homosexual LTGBQ movement. It's a denial of reality. It's a denial of what's obvious. I don't, you don't even need to argue against this. It's just a denial of what's obvious reality. There's, we are, as, as, a society, as a world, we are losing our collective minds because God is giving countries over. Homosexuality, I think, is biologically, it's just biologically false, it, obviously. Does it, you don't need to argue with it. Now, this does not mean we should not love and serve our gay neighbor. Neighbor, we should. Okay? Um, we, we should be salt and light to them. And there should be a warmth. There should be an invitation. And we should give them the gospel. And we should pray for their souls. And we should befriend them for Christ's sake and call them to a better life. But, frankly, it's just... It obviously is a denial of biological reality. Um, furthermore, you see our country losing its collective mind. I think the, um, the winner of the women's swimming championship recently was a man, Leah Thomas. I don't know if you've heard about this in the news, but this man apparently believes he's a woman, changed got his sex change to some degree and competed in the national swimming championships and won. Surprise. USA Today named a man, I think her name is a man, I think her his name after the sex change is, is Rachel Levine, I think it is. Uh, one of the women of the year. And 
few years ago, there was a big push where libraries were having drag queens come in dressed in drag and reading Bible stories, or Bible stories, reading uh, stories about the gay lifestyle to four and five year olds dressed up in drag. They look like Satan. <laughs> and we are supposed to. I mean, if anyone disagrees with me, I love you guys. Well, let's talk about this. But we are supposed to, as a society, believe that this is some glorious liberation of humanity. That drag queens can come dressed like the devil and talk about intercourse with my four-year-old. And that men can go out and slaughter women in sports now. And this is women's rights. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? This, we've lost our minds. And it, I, I, I'm not even angry about this. I'm, I'm grieved about this. And I pity them. for the. I pity our culture for its obvious denial of reality. Paul says the works of the flesh are evident. It's just obvious. So, this and our culture, I think, demonstrates a people who, whose minds no longer operate in accordance with obvious reality. And Lot, having made his home there in Sodom, having belonged in that place himself, demonstrates the conflicted moral confusion of a man who has imbibed the culture instead of creating an appropriate spiritual distance from these things. Next, the insignificant Christian does speak truth. But when the insignificant speaks truth, he is taken lightly because his life does not match the weightiness of his message. In 12, verses 12 and 13, the angels warn Lot. And they say, If you have anyone here, sons-in-law, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out because we're going to destroy this place. And so Lot heeds the warning. Lot heeds the warning. He's a man who heeded the warning himself. And that is why he is saved. That's why he is rescued. That's a secondary reason he's rescued. But he isn't taken seriously by his family. Verse 14. So when Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. He's not taken seriously. In fact, he has fully assimilated himself into Sodom. He was even giving his daughters hand in marriage to men in Sodom. Fully assimilated into Sodom. And when he does speak truth, when he does warn, the lightness of his life betrays him. For me, this shows me, and it shows us all, 
that we should not expect our words to have weight with people if our lives are thin and lack conformity with the reality that we speak about. Parents, this goes for your children too. They see what you watch. They see what you talk about and how you talk. They see, they see what your home life is like. And if we live lives that are light during the week, but weighty on Sundays, what, is, what that's going to communicate to your children is that this is not real. There's no power here. This does not affect life. This is just religion. That's all this is. This is a Sunday thing. Oh, this is a tradition. I see. So if we live light during the week and weighty then on Sundays, it will communicate to our family and even those around us that this is not real. There's no life change. There's no power here. Next, I've noticed that the insignificant Christian is spiritually sluggish. That means there's no fervency of spirit. He lacks vigor in his own heart. And that leads him to a lethargic response to matters of great importance. Verse 15. When Lot is given instructions to save his family, what does he do? Verse 15. As morning dawned and the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But Lot lingered. Lot lingered. You could preach a whole sermon on those words. But Lot lingered. He was faced with the destruction of him and his family. But he displays no fervency of spirit. He he displays only an anxiety. And that simply manifests itself not in quickness, but in sluggishness and in pathetic shabbiness. And so the angels have to forcibly remove him from the city and his family from the city. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him in the city. So they have to actually take him by the hand and the daughters and drag them out of the city. That shows me a man who is spiritually passive. He is no leader. Next, I notice that insignificant Christians are gullible. They are gullible. Um, Catching up here. The sun had risen and God rains fire down on the city and sulfur on the city. 
And Abraham, verse 27. You want to know why Lot is saved? Why? Because he was such a good man? No. He's only saved by mercy. And he is only saved by the intercession of Abraham. And Abraham, verse 27, went early in the morning. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah. Toward all the land. And the valley. And the smoke that went up like a furnace. Verse 29. So it was. That when God destroyed the cities of the valley. God remembered Abraham. And sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow. When you die. And when I die. The basis of. Of our salvation is because God will have remembered Christ and his sacrifice. And he will remember the imputed righteousness. And he will say, I see the fruit of my son in you. Enter into the joy of your master. However, having been saved, still, Lot represents a man. After, even after being rescued that has keeps some of Sodom in his heart and lives an insignificant life and continues to do so insignificant Christians are gullible that is to say they may be wise worldly but they're susceptible to being deceived and led astray to the harm of himself and to others. So after seeing what happened to Sodom, Lot is, going to, is thinking twice about living in another city. And he begs the angels, Can I escape to this city? It's just a little one. So you see this non-urgency to Lot constantly. It's simply just this little city here after being grabbed by the angels and brought out so he begs to go in the city after he sees fire and sulfur rain down from heaven and his wife turn into salt I haven't even touched that his wife turns back and turns into salt um, yes after seeing all these things he gets nervous and he leaves Zoar because he says well if God's going to do that I'm going to live in a cave Now, it says, um, Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in, in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the daughters hatch a plan. I don't know, maybe they thought the whole earth was destroyed. Maybe they thought they were carrying out, who knows. But the daughters hatch a plan to get Lot so drunk that they can have sex with him and become pregnant by him. Yes, this is ancestral rape of one's father. So they do. And Lot drinks. And he drinks and he drinks. And he becomes so stupid drunk that his, that his daughters are able to lie with him. And conceived by him. And the next night. 
he does the same thing. He gets so drunk and he drinks and he drinks and he drinks and the younger daughter sleeps with him and lies with him. So raped twice, drunk twice. Now, listen, I'm a Baptist through and through. So I, I want to encourage you just to, if you drink, do so wisely. Because there are, there, are, there are passages throughout the Bible that talk about the dangers of alcohol, of wine. The Proverbs say, be careful. Don't look to wine when it swirls in the cup. When you start to get dizzy, put it down. You know, another passage in Proverbs. See, the thing about wine is, it's, there's, a, there's a, or alcohol in general, is there's an addiction to it you don't notice, in that you lust after even having done awful things the next night, the first night. There's a passage in Proverbs which says, um, talks about a person who is drunk in wine so much that they became drunk and this person says, they've beaten me. They've stricken me. But when I wake up in the morning, I will seek wine again. So here's a person who was beaten, stricken, gang raped. But then in the morning, they seek it again. So be careful with your, with your drinking. There is a difference between wine with dinner and Wine all the time, or alcohol all the time. I, and I, I've never, ever, ever seen someone say, you know, I drank all night last night, and I just woke up, and I felt great. And I just got so much done. And I was able to get all of my, my work done. I woke up at five, part of the 5 a.m. club. I got all my work done early, and I just flew through the day. I prayed all day. I read my Bible. You know, it was the holiest day of my life. I never have ever heard that. So, people, Christians, now, that doesn't mean drinking is bad, necessarily. That doesn't mean wine is, a, is sinful. But when you do drink, if you do, do it wisely and with moderation. Now, so Christians who are insignificant are spiritually gullible. And they will be carried to and fro. They'll be tossed to and fro by the world. Just like Lot, who got drunk two nights in a row so that his daughters were able to sleep with him. So what do we say about this scene? The reason Lot was saved again the reason Lot was saved is because God showed mercy upon him. And God shows mercy upon all men by extending salvation to them in spite of themselves. Amen? And it's only in this passage because of the intercessory work of Abraham that Lot is rescued from the fire of Sodom. 
And it is only because of the intercessory work of a new and greater Abraham that we can be saved at all. And so, yes, Lot does represent a man who was rescued. But he also represents a man who did surround himself with wickedness. And he was morally confused. And he was spiritually sluggish. And he was carried to and fro by foolishness. And so I believe Lot stands as a perpetual warning for what an insignificant, saved life looks like. His works will be burnt up though he himself was saved. So, I want to give you, in the next two minutes, I want to give you four ways to avoid insignificance in the Christian life. Four ways to avoid insignificance. The first... I'm taking from Matthew 13, 22. And this is the parable of the sower. Matthew 13, 22. Jesus talks about the, um, what was sown among the uh, thorns. And he says, As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of, of, of the and the deceitfulness of riches choke out the word and it proves unfruitful. Don't let <clears throat> don't let the deceitfulness of riches or the cares of the world or entertainment or advancing in, in careers, whatever it may be. Don't let it choke out what is most important and prove unfruitful in your life. There are some people who spend their whole life chasing maybe a position. It is astounding to me how hard it is to get a PhD because I've thought about it. But I, I think people sacrifice their entire life and their families, many, to do that. It's just incredible how hard it is. Some people are able to do it well. Some people are able to do it well. And I I admire those people that are disciplined. Um, But it's just astounding to me how I've seen and heard about some people going for PhDs and the cares of the world and the cares of their education choke out what's most important. Not all, but some. So that's one way to avoid insignificance. Keep focused. The second way to avoid insignificance in your life is to become a man or a woman of inner strength by God's power. In 2 Peter 1, 2 Peter 1, Peter says, <laughs> That is a cute laugh. 
Peter says, His divine power has given you all you need. I have given all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence by which He has been granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, because you've escaped the corruption in the world, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Now get this. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from becoming ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is another way to avoid being ineffective or unfruitful and insignificant is to become a man or a woman of godly virtue. Knowledge, self-control, love, brotherly affection, godliness. Seek to put on these things and don't you dare look down on yourself and say, I've, I've I have not done it. That's not the point of this. The point of this is you stand here or sit here well and in your right mind with years ahead of you. So let this be a day where you begin to add to your faith in a more intentional and deliberate way and avoid lot-likeness. The next way you can avoid being, being insignificant in the Christian life is to help in cases of urgent need. In Titus 3.14, the Apostle Paul says, And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help in cases of urgent need, and not be unfruitful. So, if there are cases of urgent need in the church, let's say a family needs some meals brought to them or groceries brought to them. You could be fruitful. Lastly, the next way to avoid lot-likeness is to pursue what? Christ-likeness. Look to Christ because he's not just your Savior, he's your Lord. And discipleship requires not just being saved by him but being a disciple of him. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father the Son in the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. 
and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So, those are four ways that you can begin to, pr- to pursue significance in the Christian life. And how you can make your life count for eternity. Not being like the ones John Piper talked about who went down and spent their whole life collecting seashells which they will present to the Lord on the last day. Not that it's wrong to collect seashells, but what is your life about? What's the main thing? Christ-likeness. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. And everything else will be added to you. Amen? So let's avoid lot-likeness and look to be Christ-like. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would take this message and um, do with it what you would, Lord. Thank you for giving me strength to stand and speak this. I ask that it would prick the hearts of those who need to hear it that it would not be a source of condemnation, but exhortation for your people. We give you all praise, honor, and glory. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Now, unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only wise God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, Before all time, be glory and power and majesty and dominion. Now, before all time, and forevermore. Amen and amen. If anyone would like special prayer, I would love to pray with you. Let's quickly tear down, and and then we'll have the members especially, um, in particular, come down. And I have just a short meeting for you. God bless you.